Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Legacy can be a magnetic and unpredictable force. Perhaps you decided to become a plumber, or a pilot, or a doctor, or a soldier, because you felt compelled to follow in a relative's footsteps. Some professions certainly run in the blood. Adam Wright was born into a musically gifted family. And when he was still a boy, his uncle, The country music superstar Alan Jackson made the prospect of success in that ultra-competitive field seem tangible, perhaps too tangible, for an aspiring guitarist and singer who spent many years holding down a series of steady but unfulfilling jobs while chasing his own neon rainbow. Inherited talent gave Wright an edge when he and his bride took the leap and moved to Nashville, and he eventually toured with several big stars, including Loretta Lynn. But the music business is full of talented people who never managed to crack the secret code. The drive that has propelled Wright to become a Grammy-nominated songwriter isn't all that different than the formula employed by your family physician or the business owner down the street. He found something that stirred his soul and dedicated himself to becoming really good. Writing songs that demanded to be heard. Let's talk about the seductive power of music and the mysterious art of songwriting with Adam Wright. was the first song that you remember that kind of hit you in the gut when you were a kid oh like like really made an emotional impact yeah um gosh that's hard to say um now there were some things that i found very exciting um 
which is different, I think, than than getting hit in the gut. Um, I don't know that I have, I'm not sure that I had the emotional capacity to be hit in the gut <laughs> uh, in, until about four years ago. <laughs> but uh, um, I do remember finding some things very exciting as a kid. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was I listen to music sometimes. I get up really early in the morning before the kids and everything, just kind of drink coffee and usually listen to music or read something. And I, I was listening to uh, Satisfaction, Rolling Stones. And that was one of the first things, Louie Louie and Satisfaction, I remember distinctly the first time I ever heard them and it just like lightning went off. I just never heard anything like it. It it was just, um, it just altered uh, everything. It it just uh, opened the door to how exciting uh, sounds could be and songs could be and i don't know man i was i was very young i mean i was i was probably younger than my kids are now it's probably you know six or seven you know and i remember dropping finding my dad's records and dropping a needle on a rolling stones record and hearing that uh guitar riff on satisfaction and i I had no idea what i was hearing it was just so exciting to me and and then as you become more um educated in music or just exposed to more music that I think that happens, you know, much less often, you know, it takes a lot more to, to excite you because you've heard everything uh, to a degree, but it still happens. And, you know, I, my, my kind of journey musically is I can pinpoint those, the times that that's happened and sort of altered my course in a way, but anyway, all, to your, to your point, um, I'm not sure, but I do remember the things I found very exciting and that uh, Satisfaction was one, Louie Louie was one. What um, was it about those two songs, you know, two classic rock songs from the 60s, uh, obviously, you know, before your time? Um, much before, yeah. Yeah, what was it about those, the, the sound of it, the, the visceral nature of it that, that, that kind of hit you? I think I'm still trying to figure that out. I think that's why I was kind of listening to listening to the Stones this morning. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, it is distinct and it, it is, uh, it does stand out. And even then, I mean, there were some interviews that I looked at about when that song came out and it was different. It was different then, much different than what I was hearing. I mean, I was, you know, when I was listening to this as a kid, I mean, it was the early eighties. And so it was much different than, you know, everything that was going on around me then, for sure. Yeah, and I'm, but, su- I'm sure it also, you, you can now appreciate it you know, as a middle-aged guy now, who that Mick and those guys were, they were so young when Satisfaction hit. Mick was, what, maybe oh, they were, maybe 20, maybe? They were, yeah, they were children. I mean, they were, they were children. Um, and how exciting that must have been. Or maybe, I don't, maybe they weren't even aware of it. I don't know, but... Um, you know, I think it, it, I guess it was their first big hit. It turned them into, you know, stars. You know, they were they were sort of just another band, and I think I think that was the thing that launched them. But the the whatever the the calculus that makes um, a song like that or a record like that, I just I don't know. I mean, if people knew what it was, they would do it every time. And, you know, and, I don't think people know what it is. And also, people need to understand that you came from a, a very musically gifted family. And, and tell me about your family. Well, my uh, 
my dad uh, is a piano player and a singer also. Um, and his father was a piano player. Um, you know, prior to my grandfather, my dad's dad, I'm not sure. I know that um, I think he had, my granddad had a, I mean, my dad, my dad's grandmother played harmonica. And I think he had a, a granddad or a great uncle that played uh, a fiddle or something. But my granddad, um, I think, was the first actually, you know, educated musician. Uh, he was born blind and went to a school for the blind in Macon, Georgia, and began to take uh, piano lessons and uh, woodworking lessons also to learn how to repair pianos. But uh, the musical lessons were um, uh, intense. Uh, it was classical music. And he, my, my, uh, I spent a lot of time with my granddad playing music and just listening to him talk about music. We spent a lot of time in his music room at the piano um, talking about things and listening to him talk about, he used to arrange for big bands. And I mean, he was a very, he was a very educated musician uh, and a very talented musician, but his, his education just really put all of that together for him. He was, I mean, he was very accomplished and, he described to me when he was in Macon, they would have to take, um, for instance, like a, I remember him talking about learning a Rachmaninoff piece. And, you know, when uh, when you have your vision, you can look at sheet music and uh, read as you play. Basically, you know, sort of hunt and peck around the notes as you're reading the sheet music until you get it under your fingers. And then it's just a matter of practice. But what they had to do without their sight was... Uh, the sheet music was in braille they would have to memorize sheet uh sheets of music an entire I, I don't think they would do the entire song at a time but you know entire sheets they would have to commit to memory before they ever actually played them so his ability to uh hold in his mind um harmony and rhythm before he actually plays it is just was scary he, he really had a there were things going on in his mind that were just so far beyond what um, a musician that had never had to learn that way uh, was able to do. He was a, he was dangerous. And then my grandmother sang um, and they used to arrange and um, lead big bands around the Southeast. Uh, they were touring musicians, you know, before he settled into music education and was a teacher and a piano tuner, which is how he really made his living. Um, so that was my dad's side of the family. And then my mom's side of the family were all singers. Um, some of them could play instruments and they've learned to play them since, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, they've learned to play uh, mostly stringed instruments. Um, but prior to that, I think they were just singers, mostly in church and just around the house, sort of front porch singers. Um, and um, although they could read music, uh, they weren't uh, players, really. But, but a lot of music. I mean, just there was a lot of music going on all the time. Somewhere in that in that story with your grandfather, there's a there's a metaphor somewhere about the creative process. In other words, something magical about it. You either have it or or you don't. Yeah, yeah. I would I would I think that I do I do I think that's a, a gift um, that you're that you're born with or you know that that's it's such something in your genetics I suppose and the way that a skilled athlete, you know, has, uh, you know, I don't know, longer leg bones or a strange attachment in their hips that allows them to do things that other 
you know, that other athletes can't do. It's just a, um, it's just a gift, having an ear, um, the way a, an artist has a, has an eye. You can, you can cultivate a certain amount of that. Um, you can work hard and you can learn technique. And I think you can learn theory of, of any, of anything, any skill, you know, from plumbing <clears throat> to guitar playing. But I do think there's a certain amount of gift that you just show up in the world with that's going to make the difference between being pretty good or adequate and, uh, and possibly being great. Did you, uh, did you always aspire to be a, a performer and a songwriter, or was that something that, that took you a while to come to? Um, songwriting, I just, I didn't even think about it when I was younger. Um, I mean, it's the vehicle through which all of the other stuff that any, any music fan finds exciting has to travel in, but I just never thought about, uh, being a songwriter, you know, I just, I just found music exciting and had to be a part of it somehow, whatever that meant. And I, I wasn't very specific. I just, I, if I found something that made noise, I picked it up and tried to make noise with it. I just had to be a part of the whole thing. There was one time, um, I guess I was in elementary school and, uh, at the church, they, uh, said they were going to have a, uh, they offered recorder lessons. I didn't know what a recorder was. I think that's something that John thought, Boy played on the Waltons one time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a little <laughs> sort of a plastic flute. I thought we were going to get to record music. I thought recorder lessons meant we were going to get a recorder, some sort of a, you know, an audio recorder and learn how to make our own music. That's what I thought we were going to do. And so I came home very excited and said, Mom, I've got to get to make a demo record, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I thought, we get to sign up for recorders. This is what I want to do. And my my dad said, are you sure you want to do recorder lessons? And I said, yes, this is so exciting. Because I was listening to his old records every night and how cool these, you know, how cool these recordings were. And I I thought, man, it these lessons can get me anywhere closer to being able to do this. This, I, yes, I'm in. Uh, I and just have to ask. He, he didn't have a, a collection of uh, Zom Fear, the master of the pan flute, by any chance, did he? <laughs> he did not. He did not. I think the closest we had to that would have been Herb Albert. And uh, Herb think, Albert uh, was the man uh, in the '60s, man. He was the man, and you know, I mean, and for a you know, and for a boy too, uh, really the the album cover for the whipped cream and other delights was, oh, yeah, it absolutely. might have surpassed, absolutely. Have surpassed <laughs> the, the music, uh, I think for most people, but, um, I came to appreciate his music much later. Um, but the, I remember weeks, weeks after we put in our money for the recorder, I remember showing up at the church that night and I knew that our recorders were going to be there and I couldn't wait to see what kind of, you know, wheels and gears and buttons and lights were going to be on this recorder. I was so excited. And then we got this little box and I thought, well, it's a little, that's shaped a little differently than I thought it was going to be, but okay. And I opened it up and there was this little plastic, (laughs) little plastic flute. And I was so disappointed. I thought, what is this? And he goes, this is a recorder. Like, well, how, what do, what do we do with it? And then, they, you know, I think whoever it was, I don't remember who the, who the uh, director was, they showed us how to play it. Man, I just felt like I'd been duped. 
and I went home um, pretty depressed about it all. And uh, my dad said, no, uh-uh, you're sticking with it. You said you wanted to take recorder or already bought this thing. You are learning to play it. <laughs> and I must have blocked out the rest of it. I don't remember learning to play recorder, but I'm sure I was made to. Now, what did you learn out of that experience? Um, ask questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, beyond ask that, what, 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 <laughs> yeah. what, what did you learn about the fact that your your dad made you live up to your commitment on that? Um, yeah, just don't jump in if you're not sure about it. You know, I mean, I, I can be, uh, I'm better about it now, uh, but um you know, I can be a bit impulsive, you know, I can, I can kind of race from one thing to another. And I see it in my children too, particularly my oldest. Uh, he'll get very excited about a thing. He'll, he'll, he, he sees things and wants to be a part of them, wants to do them. He just has to be a part of it somehow. And sometimes that's, you know, ice skating lessons because he sees somebody play hockey or, um, or basketball or a particular instrument he wants or see somebody ride a skateboard and then he wants a skateboard and has to do a thing. And so we have to sort of curb that a little bit and make him realize that there's a time commitment and a financial um, commitment to all of these things. And, you know, we can't just stop and start everything that you get excited about while also not trying to squash all of his enthusiasm, you know, because it is easy. A, a curiosity is you know, that's stardust. And yeah, I think you have to keep, keep that alive and not go to the poorhouse uh, somehow. And when did you first perform in public? Um, you know, um, aside from, uh, you know, maybe doing the Christmas um, show at our, you know, kindergarten and first grade, um, which I don't think counts, um, I remember being cast as Christopher Columbus in a school play when I was in elementary school. I think it was second grade. Um, it had to be, had to be later than that. It must've been fourth grade. And, uh, it was a singing part, you know, and it wasn't singing with a choir. It was me singing by myself. I didn't and know Chris was that, uh, that talented. I don't think he, I think he had other talents that, uh, did not involve pleasing people with music. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I'm not sure who uh, who put this musical together, but uh, or the name of it, really. But I remember bits and pieces of my song. But now, I, did you I, did you I, take anything away from that? That that experience light you up in in some way? Yes, because um, well, one, I, I just kind of I like you know I always liked always like costumes and things when I was younger, I thought I was going to be a, um, I thought I was going to be a movie director. You know, I, I really, I was way into, uh, costumes and, sh you know, my parents had a little, you know, VHS video camera and I would make these little movies. So all of like, just uh, anything that had something to do, you know, with that, uh, and recording music, uh, I, I was very into. And so, you know, I got to dress up, uh, like, whoever our teacher was had decided Christopher Columbus uh, looked, which was probably not terribly accurate, but maybe not too far off. I don't know. Uh, and learn this song and sing it. And it was nerve wracking, but I was, you know, it was, I got into it because I was into those things. And afterwards, I 
remember uh, a few girls from the class uh, came up and were sort of swooning because, you know, it was just this, you know, singing solos uh, on stage in front of the school was just not something that a lot of guys did. And I think uh, I have, getting that kind of attention certainly did not hurt. Uh, so at that point, so you had you had rung the bell. You were now inside the building, and um, <laughs> you, you had your motivation. And yeah. Uh, yeah, there you go, right? And man, and I think you know, and I was, I think that was, I mean, that's still my motivation. Uh, only it's you know, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to be flattered by you know girls I don't know. It's mostly, mostly my wife. I'm still trying to impress her. <laughs> I still come home with a song I've written or a recording I've done and say, oh, what do you think about this? And man, I mean, she's, how did you first, she's not imp- how did you first meet Shannon? Tell me, tell me that story. Um, well, I, I was working at uh, the Redneck Bar and Grill, you know, where we met um, many years ago. And um, I was a line cook there and I was, you know, playing on the weekends and her cousin, uh, was our beer rep. She worked for, gosh, I don't remember if it was Miller or Budweiser, but one of the two. And uh, she would come every week and restock our beer and take orders and all that. So I, I got to know her just on like sort of a friendly, hey, how you doing? How are things? basis. And she had seen me play, you know, a couple of Friday nights up there. And uh, one night she says, hey, my cousin plays in Atlanta. And I think her guitar player is leaving, moving on. I don't know what the deal was. I think he was getting like a, you know, quote unquote, real job. And she said, would you be interested in going up and playing guitar with her? And I said, sure. Thinking, you know, whatever this was, probably would never, would never come to be. And so I was, you know, at the house one night and I got a, a phone call and it was Shannon, her cousin. And she said, hey, I've got a gig on Thursday. This was probably a Tuesday. Uh, it's in January. And she said, I've got a gig. My guitar player is not going to be with me. Uh, my cousin said, you play guitar. She kind of vouched for you. If you want to come play with me, um, you know, come on. I'll give you a little bit of money. And I thought, great. And, you know, I showed up. Uh, you know, guitar in hand. And first of all, I, you know, I, I thought she was beautiful and I was living the life of a, you know, sort of a pathetic uh, <laughs> creature at the time. I mean, I was just dragging myself into this uh, bar and grill to make sandwiches all day and then um, playing guitar by myself all night until I fell asleep and trying to learn, you know, Lightning Hopkins records and obscure Bob Dylan songs. I mean, it was just, you know, I was just kind of doing my thing, minding my own business. And, um, and then to, to go to Atlanta and walk into this bar and just and see this beautiful girl who had these gigs, you know, making money, playing music, um, was really exciting to me, not to, you know, not the, the making money, but just the, um, it, I just found it all very attractive, her especially. And so she said, what songs do you know? We kind of rifled through. She had a little book of songs. And I said, I know this. One. So boom, played that. It was a Lenny Kravitz song, first song we played. And man, we were just off and running. You know, our voices blended well together. We, you know, our, our guitar playing uh, blended together. And we just got on really well. And 
I just never left. <laughs> I mean, I, I said, where's your next gig? You know, whatever it was the next night. And I was like, okay, well, can I do that? And she said, yeah, come on. And that's it, man. You know, that was, uh, you know, over 20 years ago. And also at that same time, of course, your your uncle had become a huge superstar, Alan Jackson. Yeah. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention that when we were talking about, you know, family musical history is that, I mean, I mean, gosh, one of the, you know, the, the big bang of, of our musical cosmos was um, him becoming a, you know, a mega superstar in the world of country music. I mean, it was, it was a, uh, it doesn't happen to many families. <laughs> did, that, did that make it, did his, uh, you know, remarkable success, did that make it seem real, that the possibility of making a real living doing this? I think, um, I think I felt like it was a real possibility anyway. Uh, I think if anything, it might have made it, it might have given me a false impression of how often that happens. Um, maybe because I'd seen somebody, you know, that I knew, I mean, my, uh, I was, you know, we were close to them. We saw, you know, we ate lunch with them all the time. I ate Sunday lunch with them all the time. And, you know, we, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a distant relative that, uh, that I hadn't known. It was, you know, somebody that I grew up with became a superstar. Um, I, I almost feel like it made it seem more doable than it is. I mean, becoming a, Becoming a, 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 a performer, recording artist on that level, it just doesn't happen very often. I mean, for every one of those that gets to that level, and there are thousands that have tried to and, and are still trying to and, and don't ever, it doesn't ever happen for whatever reasons. Um, so it, it, it's pretty rare, but it made it seem like maybe it wasn't so rare. But uh, I, think I, I think I already felt like if I really wanted to do it, there's a way to do it and not starve to death, you know, or maybe I just didn't think about it. I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not terribly cerebral. I probably just kept moving forward one chord at a time. How tough was, was the decision for, for you and Shannon to, to move to Nashville where thousands and thousands of people moved to Nashville thinking they're either going to be a performer or a songwriter or a producer. Um, that's a leap. That's a tremendous leap. Yeah. It, you know, I don't, I don't remember it feeling that way. I mean, I remember a moment uh, where, you know, Shannon and I, we were in Atlanta, you know, we were playing, playing our gigs. And we had a little band and we were writing songs and we had day jobs and we were, you know, we were doing all right. Um, and I do remember us talking about it one evening and her saying, we should go to Nashville. Let's go to Nashville. And we are, we know I knew people in Nashville. We had been to Nashville a lot to play, you know, Alan Denise lived there. I mean, I was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a distant land that I, I had no, had no bearings. Uh, it was, it was a pretty familiar place. Uh, so it, I don't remember being that scary, um, you know, until I got there. <laughs> and then here, I mean, I thought, I guess I thought I was familiar with Nashville. Once you get there and start going to writer's rounds, um, I'll tell you the first writer's round we went to, um, I mean, the very first one, um, and I guess a writer's round for people that may be listening to your podcast that don't know is where three or four writers all get up on a stage and uh, each take turns playing their songs. 
uh, and you know, in front of a room full of people. And this one was at a pretty seedy little place, kind of on the edge of town. It seemed like a pretty safe place to kind of dip your toe in. And uh, I remember uh, Danny Dill was first. No, uh, uh, Don Wayne, Danny Dill, and oh, gosh, I can't remember the other guy that was there. Um, that's a, um, I'll think of it in a little while, but, um, he was not as, um, uh, he was not as well known as, uh, as Danny Dill and Don Wayne who wrote, Don Wayne wrote, um, Saginaw, Michigan, and, uh, Country Bumpkin, uh, Saginaw, Michigan, which was a huge hit for Lefty Frizzell. And Danny Dill wrote, um, um, Long Black Veil and others that were just, you know, legendary legend legendary songs i mean it's just sort of you know uh classic songs in, in country music and some of them crossed over uh, so i mean the, the monster writers uh to be seeing at our first writers round ever and then we were up next after these guys and i thought we're just not gonna make it like if we've got to hang with this caliber of writer i was like we've made a terrible mistake <laughs> and uh you know maybe we had i don't know but um the job was at that time, you get there, you get in any room you can get in, write with whoever you can write with and learn how to do this job, you know, and we were sort of sitting at the feet of some really, really great writers who had had huge careers uh, in national songwriting and uh, were somehow willing to write with us. Um, and man, and the, the city was different at that time. You know, you still had people like Lucinda Williams um and buddy miller who's still there uh but not as he's not you know he doesn't hang out uh like he used to julie miller was still out and about and hanging out i mean it was a it was still a very it's a songwritery town now but it's also a lot of other things and the type of songwriters that are there now are uh, are different they're sort of uh slightly removed from the taproot i think as uh as my friend Richard Bennett might say. Uh, well, there's, and, there's not a there's not a truck driver or a salesman uh, or a writer uh, who doesn't think they have a country song in them. And that's true. I yeah. mean, yeah. And, that, and so, yeah. what did you think that it took to write a country song, and what does it really take? What did you learn that it takes? Patience, I think, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, you know, perseverance, you just have to write it. I mean, everybody says this and it's because it's true is that you just have to write a lot of bad songs, you know, to get to good songs. Um, a friend of mine, Jay Knowles, whom I've done a lot of writing with, a uh, very good writer in town. Um, he always said he thought you had to be over 40 years old to write country songs. Like if you're, you know, if you're under 40, you just don't know what it means. But I think he's right. But I also think that people's idea of what country songs are has change so much that um i mean you know it's just different it's a you know uh you'd have to define country music and country songs first before you could qualify um who could best write it you know or how and how to do it but man at its core what i've always tried to do is the sort of the same thing that the writers in other genres that i admired have tried to do which is simplify um simplify a thought or an emotion or a situation as much as you can um and in a way that sounds like you would like the way that you would think or the way that you would talk um 
Hank Williams was brilliant at it. Johnny Cash was brilliant at it. Merle Haggard was brilliant at it. And a lot of other songwriters that, you know, the world doesn't know um, were brilliant at it. Um, I think when it gets to, um, for lack of a better word, writery, uh, when there are too many flourishes, when it sounds like you were sitting at a desk and sweating, uh, is when it doesn't work. Um, and you have to sit at a desk and sweat or it doesn't work. But if it sounds like you did, it's, um, it's just not, it's not the same thing. It doesn't have the impact and it doesn't have as wide an appeal. I think the simplicity and the power, um, that you can put in the simplest, um, way it, to me is like the magic of country music. Yeah. Uh, when it's when it's when it's done really well i mean and that's a hard thing to learn i mean most people want to chalk things full of stuff you know it's like a young guitar player that wants to play all the notes he can play and it just you don't hear those notes you know but once you learn to play three notes instead of the 15 and they all mean something um then then you're kind of on to something and to me that's what really good country songwriting um achieves when you listen to somebody else's work today for the first time, you hear a really great song that that touches you emotionally. Mm-hmm. What does that experience um, mean to you? Does it? And I wonder if it means something different to you as someone inside the gates um, than it does to the rest of us. Um, that's a good question. I think uh, it, it's hard for me not to analyze. Uh, songs as a songwriter, um, which can be a little bit of a drag. But you, but you still can't. Uh, you can't separate yourself from the emotional experience, though, right? It depends. Like if, if I can see all the sewing, um, it's hard to feel it uh, because I'm just you know if I'm looking at the stitching, it's just it's it's hard for me to believe that it's if I know it's a muppet because I can see some stuffing hanging out where you didn't quite get that seam together, then I know I'm not talking to a purple thing with orange hair. But if I don't see all of that stuff, you know, if that's good enough, then I'm in, you know, I'm in the experience and I'm having a conversation with an orange thing or a purple thing with orange hair. Um, and I think it's just a, uh, a matter of um, experience. But it still happens to me. And sometimes it happens to me with songs that, you know, I've heard a lot and then I just, they hit me again in, in, uh, in some way. And I don't, I don't know what parts of that make that happen. Um, and I, but it's, that's what, that's what pulls you on though. I, I would, I would guess that the inverse is also true in the sense that, um, you now have to work harder to, to move yourself in your own work. Right. Yeah, that's true. And it seems like uh, if I'm, because it, it does happen, and it's, it seems funny to be moved by your own ideas and, uh, and words that you're working on. It seems um, a little arrogant and self-centered, but you sort of have to start there in a way, if it's that kind of song, you know, if it's meant to, if it's meant to be an emotional song, if it's not just meant to be clever or fun or groovy in a way that's, you know, just satisfying in that way. If it's supposed to be something meaningful, um, those usually have to be honest, at least in my experience, like, or at least something, something in there has to be honest. Um, But the the things that have moved me that have become 
songs that have also resonated with other people, meaningful songs, deeper songs, have been things that were true. Uh, meaning writing out of my own experience, you know, whatever I was feeling at the time um, and trying to put those, put those uh, emotions into words, which is, I guess what most people do. But when you, sometimes when you become a professional songwriter, um, you can get out your tools and build things without really uh, stopping to think uh, what your building means or if it has to mean anything. Sometimes you're just doing work, um, which is not, something to be proud of but it just would you you know when you're doing it it'd be hard to have an emotional day every day when you're working you know um pretty draining i guess I'm some sure. writers do yeah i would imagine i mean i, I don't i don't do that I don't, you know and I, and I write slower now than i used to anyway but um you know i'd hate to have to write uh something that meaningful all the time it would just it would be draining you're listening to american achievers Stay tuned for more conversation. Let's talk about the anatomy of a of a, of a song from your standpoint. Uh, you know, what do you? How do you? How do you start? Um, I mean, it, it changes a little bit. The process changes a little bit depending on what type of song it is. Um, but most, I'm probably most comfortable. And this is not how you start writing songs, by the way, but just i've become more comfortable with uh, a, uh having a topic um sometimes it's a lyrical hook if it's more of a country song it's, it's sort of a lyrical hook um a line which would be you know the the main line of the chorus whatever that is and um and then working building a song around that you know leading every pointing everything towards that line um we're just, you know, kind of like carpentry and just trying to make it, you know, impactful. But I, what I really like doing uh, lately is having a topic, uh, whether it be a, a certain situation or a, a character um, that's sort of a compilation of, of actual people or, or things I've been think, thinking about. Um, or, um, you know, something... Um, an actual person, you know, in history, and then you should do some research on them. And, and uh, you read lots of things, and you do a lot of jotting in notebooks. And then out of all of that, um, a line will always appear, uh, just sometimes just a few, uh, a few words strung together that show up and sound like the beginning of a song. That's my I think that's my favorite thing to do, because it takes a long time. But you go really deep on a topic or a character. And something shows up and then you have to go to work, you know, writing the song, but that those things are exciting to me because they're not um, maybe the obvious way to go about it. Um, the other way, which is the way most people start writing songs is to pick up an instrument, sit down a piano or pick up a guitar and start playing something, you know, a chord change or a riff and something falls out. You know, you just sing something, something, and you're just in some melody or group of words just sort of spills out and then you build on top of that. And I'm kind of led to believe that pretty much every really popular song probably came about that way. I mean, I'd venture to guess that almost every Beatles song ever written probably started like that. Some piece of music and then words fell together and then they made a song out of it. Um, but it's the genesis of it being 
this exciting musical thing and then a melody you know you found a melody on top of that and then you went to work figuring out what the actual words were um there's something so catchy about a thing that begins with that you know with with the music and the just the rhythm of things uh it's it's sort of already it's got a it's got a greater advantage over an intellectual idea that you have to develop and then find out what it sounds like later which is actually kind of the way i really like to write songs currently but it changes does all of that make sense or am i just sort of no I, I absolutely makes perfect sense <laughs> i mean and where do you understand now at, at this stage in your career where that creativity comes from is it is it a switch that you can easily turn on and off um sort of just the, the where, where the where where the thing begins like just where yeah where something uh comes to you um no i guess that's you know inspiration and i i i do find that when i have a steady input there's more output so if i'm listening to music or if i'm playing and singing a lot um those things show up more you know ideas show up more you're, you're just you got your radar you know tuned in um a little hotter you know if you're doing those things all the time um if you're not if i'm doing other things like making a record to me is like the i mean as creative as making records can be uh, it it completely turns the knob down on songwriting um for me you're just you're using your brain and you're listening for totally different things you're trying to figure out how to make um you know a drums sound good with uh with a bass and then hit a mix a vocal in a spot and do any background vocals and what's this guitar gonna do those kinds of you know musical logistics um how they just they just put they tie the songwriter up and put him in a closet for a little while um i can't those two can't coexist at the same time if i'm going really heavy on one thing so uh, uh, i really like writing songs more uh than the other stuff but as far as where they come from man it's like i don't know so you just hear sometimes you hear um another songwriter or you hear a song that gets you really excited something you've never heard before and then you're kind of off and running that's happened with me before um sort of rediscovering some of my favorites you know like uh, a, a Knopfler record i haven't listened martin Knopfler record i haven't listened to in a while or a roger miller song that i haven't heard or just hear differently for some reason or sometimes it's a singer, it's a co-writer even. Um, you know, you hear a voice uh, and you, it, it's exciting to you and you it inspires you to find a song that you would like to hear that voice sing. And a lot of uh, the songs that I have had cut were almost always that, particularly if they were, if they were songs that I've written by myself. I heard, I knew someone's voice and I, I would write songs that I wanted to hear that voice sing. And I was usually, you know, I usually hit them pretty good. But with Leanne, I was really good at that. Leanne Womack, um, I just knew her voice very well. And I knew what she liked. And I, it was fun for me to write songs that I thought she would sing really well. And with Alan, it was the same way. Uh, you know, I know his sensibilities. I know his voice. And it's really fun for me to write songs that I think he would like to sing and that I think he would he would deliver really well. And there's some other, you know, singers, songwriters, 
you know, that you haven't heard of yet uh, that are really inspiring to me that I've, that I've written songs for and with. Um, that's fun. How long was it until, you know, for you to give up your, your day job and said, okay, I'm going to be able to be full time at this? Um, let's see. I mean, I started, I started working in restaurants when I was 14 and I probably didn't stop working some sort of a day job until, man, let's see, what would that have been? 2004. I mean, so I was probably in the workforce for, you know, what is it, 14 years? You know, had some sort of a job. I mean, I had a million jobs. I mean, I, did it. I worked at Dunkin' Donuts. I worked on a horse farm. I was a sold Western wear. I made fudge at one point. I was a music teacher, a construction worker, did electrical work. What was your favorite of all I those walked. jobs? Oh, I hated all of them. <laughs> <laughs> was I there, hated it, every one of them. Was there yeah. a, a kind of uh, was there kind of motivation in that? The fact that oh man, I hate this stuff. I've got to do what I what yes. I love, right? I never had a job that I was not thinking about how to stop doing it. Never. I mean, every minute, every hour of every week in any job I ever had that, that didn't involve music, I was trying to not have to do it again. Um, and I mean, I had some great employers. I had some great, you know, students when I was teaching music. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was nothing like that. And I was thankful for the paychecks, you know, it kept me alive, but, um, I never wanted to do any of those things. All I wanted to do was play music. And so uh, every minute spent doing that was, I looked at it as a minute, uh, one less minute I was going to get to do what I wanted to do. Uh, I couldn't wait. And it took me a long time. I mean, gosh, I had a million jobs. And it was just it didn't happen very fast. Um, but um, yeah, I don't take it for granted. The fact that I get to get up and put a guitar in my hand and think of what I want to sing or go play on somebody's record or go do a show. I mean, I, man, I appreciate it. Uh, I clocked in a lot of hours of jobs that, uh, that I really did not like. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate the fact of being able to do, um, what I want to do every day. And I'm trying to, you know, trying to keep that going trying to keep the dream alive. It's a little harder now than it was, you know, 10 or so years ago. Well, the, that that drive that you clearly had to, to be in the music business, how much of that was, I do not want to do this, I want to do this, and therefore I'm going to pursue excellence in this, and I'm going to do what it takes? I, yeah, I think I think that, that I think you have to be. There are so many other people trying to do this. I think you have to be, you have to be pretty hungry. And, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people kind of blow through and get lucky, you know, just kind of walk in and somebody hands them an armload of success. And they just, you know, a lot of times, though, when that happens, they, they go, they get tired of carrying it and they put it down and they go do something else. Um, you know, those of us that have had to sort of, you know, kind of slog through the, the stuff a little bit, um, I think we don't, we don't put it down so easily, but, um, yeah, I think you 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 got to be pretty hungry, um, and still, I mean, gosh, I've been doing this for a while, and I'm probably harder on myself now than than I've ever been about being better, um, and you know, not, not necessarily better than other people, um, but better than me. You know, I I don't want to make, I don't want to write the songs I wrote six months ago 
you know, or last year. I want to write or last month, you know, I, I just, I want to be the best that I can be. This is what I'm doing. And it's, uh, it's constant, man. You have to be pretty diligent. It's, you, I think you can get kind of lazy because, you know, it's the music business to some degree. I mean, you're your own boss. Um, you can, you can, you can work as hard as you want to, right? Or not. You can work or not. Yeah. And, um, uh, there's a lot of freedom. And if you're, if you're the kind of person that thrives with that, um, it can be a great thing because people will leave you alone. And, and I enjoy being left alone. I mean, my dream is to just be left alone and work my brains out. Um, and then, you know, then you got to go find a way to make it all make the rubber meet the road at some point. But, um, but if you're not that kind of person, if you know, if you need someone to sort of say, okay, go do this, go do this and then do this. And then when you do this, we'll see how this works out. Um, you know, a publishing deal is probably not the gig for you. You know, I mean, uh, you can, you can really just sort of, if you wanted to, I mean, you could probably get into video games and just waste 14 years of your life. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what would you say to a, a young person today who, who has a dream in something, whether it's music, some sort of art, some sort of business or whatever, that something that, does not you, you can't look up in the dictionary and figure out how to do it um yeah it, it, there's a circuitous route to it and there's a magic to it that you that you can either find the, the 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 your way through the the maze or not what would you say to someone like that about identifying a dream cult, cultivating a dream and achieving a dream gosh um man those are i, I i'm not sure i have ever been um I, I don't think i ever saw a really clear definitive goal in mind um you know and probably if you read any book on success i mean that's probably the first thing um they would have you do is sort of you know mark a very clear goal and then i you know figure out how to get there um I just never did. I just always wanted to work. I always wanted to be busy getting better at this. That's all I wanted to do. That's still all I want to do. I mean, all I want to do is progress. I just want to be better all the time and, um, and just go deeper with what I'm doing and just stay inspired. And through doing that, I have found people that resonate um, with the work I was doing. And that has, I mean, that has kept me alive. Um, you know, I, I've met some songwriters that, you know, they, they, just, they just want a number one hit. That's what they want. And the how they get there, why they get there, what they get there with is uh, secondary to the thing. And some of them make it and some of them don't. Um, the ones that do, it seems... Um, well, I've seen some, I've seen it different ways. I've seen some people do it and they're fine with it. And, and the success begets more success. I've seen some of them go that route and sort of fall short. And then they have to kind of start over um, and figure out sort of who they are and what they're about and what they want to do. Um, I mean, you have to love it, whatever it is. I, you're going to, ha you have to love it, especially with a, um, a thing like, uh, like, like anything really, like any big undertaking, like if, if you love it, you're going to do it all the time. And if you do it all the time, you're going to get better. And if you get better, 
you're going to love it because it's going to feel better to you. And then you're going to do it more and then you're going to keep getting better. And I think it's got to be something you just really love to do. Um, outside of that, I mean, I, I, I wish I had, I wish I had some uh, tools for success. I'm just not sure that I do, you know, you could apply that philosophy to anything, to anything. It's, it seems like it. I mean, I, you know, like, uh, I think I would want the guy, you know, I don't know, designing uh, car tires to sort of be excited about designing, you know, um, not just kind of phoning it in, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, pa passion gotta, is the key to life in so many ways. You're, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Passion is the key to life. And yeah, you're right. It, it, that applies to everything. If you're passionate about it, you're going to do well, you know, and success is, you know, defining success is tricky. You know, I'll tell you, um, I know I'm running my mouth a lot, but, um, um, I, you know, the closer to a mountain you get, you know, it, it, the taller it looks, you know, and that's kind of the way it's been with this thing. Um, from far off, you think you see people, you know, people that have been on top of a mountain and you go, Oh man, that's cool. That doesn't seem like it's that hard to do. And you get closer and you get closer and you get closer and you get to the bottom of it and you realize it's straight up, man. And you can't even see the top, but you're closer than the people that are three miles back, just looking at the mountain, but it feels like you're farther away from the top uh, at the base of the thing. And it's sort of, it's always felt like that to me. It's like the closer I've gotten to whatever success is, um, it feels like I have so much, uh, so much farther to go before I, you know, get to a point. And it's easy to get frustrated. There are a lot of, especially now, like the landscape has changed, and you know, with the with streaming and you know the, the value of a copyright is just so much different. That's very, it's much harder to earn a regular living, um, you know, as a as a songwriter musician than it was 15 years ago. And it's, it's doable, you know, I mean, I, I do it, but it's a, it's a lot trickier. Um, you have to work a lot harder and you have to sort of diversify your, um, you know, you just gotta do, you gotta do different things. And I was sort of in the throes of one of those weeks of frustration and a friend of mine that I have not seen in gosh, 20, over 20 years, but we used to play clubs together back in Athens and Atlanta, terrific singer and wonderful person, but I haven't talked to him forever. And she, um, she, you know, she stopped doing music. Um, and you know, she's very happy. She lives, uh, I can't, I can't remember. She lives, I think in Boston maybe and married has children. She has a wonderful life. She's very happy, but she stopped doing music and she was a truly gifted singer. I mean, gifted singer. She never had to try very hard to be great. Um, and I remember she called out of the blue. It wasn't out of the blue. Actually, I sent her a painting uh, of mine and uh, she called to thank me for it. And she goes, how's it going? And I, whatever, it, whatever was happening that week, that afternoon, I was particularly frustrated. And I was like, oh man, you know, this and that and that, just music business stuff. And she said, she goes, what are you talking about? And I was like, man, I'm so frustrated by this and that and that, man. I just don't, I don't know. And she said, man, you made it like you did it. You know, none of the rest of us did it and you did it. And 
I've never looked at it that way. And this was, I mean, this was a year ago. It could be that I just, I don't see the fact that I'm successful and I feel like I'm always trying to achieve something, but it did, it did change the way I look at it in a way that I, I am doing it. And there's a lot, I mean, I have a long way to go, man. I mean, I have a long way to go. Um, but I mean, it was, it was kind of emotional to, to hear everybody I know is in the music business, man, you know? And so we're all talking about the same struggles and to hear somebody from the outside go, man, you're doing good. Uh, it just felt really good. It felt really good. When was the first time, I'm sure you remember this vividly, a major artist got in the studio and interpreted your song, and I'm sure you were right there. And how did it affect you? It would have been an Alan, uh, Alan Jackson cut. Um, it was, uh, there were two that he cut at the same time. Um, I don't remember which one we heard first, but there was one called If Love Was a River that Shannon and I wrote, <clears throat> Shannon and I wrote together. And then there was one called um, Strong Enough. And this would have been in, uh, gosh, 2002, maybe, 2003. Um, I mean, it, it was, uh, it's breathtaking. Uh, you just, you, it's, it's surreal to hear uh, somebody that uh, that popular and and that on that level sing words that you wrote at your crappy kitchen table with a gnawed up pencil, you know, in a notebook that has coffee all over it. Yeah. It, it, you feel like a fraud. As in, I still do when I hear, um, great singers sing words that I've written, I think, man, I've just, I've just ruined their careers. (laughs) (laughs) They, they really should have gotten a hold of a a real songwriter's song. Like this is, I I should tell them to not do this. Uh, But you don't because it makes you so happy to hear them doing it. It's uh, it's, it's man. It's, it's the, it's the dream. It's the dream, especially people like Alan and you know, who, who's a, I mean, one of the most celebrated songwriters of any genre, but particularly of country music. Yeah, particularly, uh, you're talking about Alan, a guy who's a, a great uh, songwriter in his own right, not just yeah. a performer. So in order to, right. to to touch something that is right for him to get it in his voice, to to have that Alan Jackson-type magic, that's an achievement yeah. that's two or three steps beyond the ordinary. Yeah. And he doesn't, he doesn't make exceptions for me because we're related. Like that doesn't enter into his, he's not going to record a song he doesn't like because I sent it to him. It's I think it's probably almost harder for me to get something cut with him, honestly. Um, but I work hard at it because I know, I know how good a song will be when he sings it, if it's the right song for him. And, uh, and that's exciting. It's an exciting thing for me to try and do. Yeah. And with Leanne's the same way. I mean, you know, one of the greatest voices um, ever, particularly in country music. And man, I mean, she just, she sings a song like she feels it and like she knows it. And it is an exciting thing for a song 
to be sung by someone like her. And there's some, uh, you know, some some other artists that are up and coming that you haven't heard yet that are they have that thing when they sing a song. It's man, it impresses you. And uh, and I don't mean in a in a sort of uh, technique and showy way, but just in a uh, it's impactful. You feel it when they sing it, and um, it, it that that kind of keeps you on to crack a notebook and and get some work done. Well, obviously, people all around the world have have heard your your songs. You you had what two Grammy nominations? Um, yeah. Let's talk about your your mega hit. Uh, so you don't have to to love me anymore. I mean, that was just a yeah. that was boy, that was just a tearjerker. Um, how where did that come yeah. from? You know, um, I wrote that with my friend Jay Knowles, um, and he and I used to do this thing. Um, uh, it doesn't get done very often. The pace of uh, the, the song mill uh, runs pretty fast. And so people just want more songs, newer songs, newer songs. What'd you write this week? What'd you write today? And he and I got on this kick where we would write for um, weeks, sometimes a month. We would write every day. You know, it was like we were running a, a you know, a, a song shop, and we would show up at the shop every morning and write every day for weeks. You know, just you know, just with each other. And man, it was a great thing to do. We got, you know, we got so many songs out of it, but we just really got in uh, deep on um, a couple of things and just the way that we write together. You know, and so a lot of shorthand and you just you just move faster and and deeper, too. And we wrote that we I think we uh, I don't know if it started as an idea or if we just. You know, in Jay, I think it probably started with he just probably sang the first words and then we just kind of knew what it was about. I don't know, but I do remember us working on it and it not being very good. And we went to lunch, came back, worked on it some more. And I think the next day we showed up and we were still going to work on it. And it was not in the same, it was not the same song that it became, but it was some version of it that we hadn't quite unlocked yet. And I think I showed up the next day and was really frustrated with it. I thought it was just a, I thought it was okay. And it was, you know, it's a slow song. So it was kind of tough to keep banging away on a slow song like that, especially when you're, when it gets broken. And uh, I thought, man, let's just, I got this other idea. Let's work on this. And it was kind of a more upbeat thing. Um, so we, we spent, I think, the rest of that day working on that song. I don't even remember what that song was, but I, at the time I thought it was a lot better than Sue Antelope anymore. And then uh, we show up the next day and we're sort of hanging out and Jay says, man, that, this other song is so much better than, than this one. So you don't have to love me anymore. It's really good. We need, to, we need to figure out what's wrong with it and fix it. And I was kind of reluctant, but we were, we were riding around Music Row, I think maybe going to get something to eat or just I think was riding around drinking coffee. I don't know, not writing. And, uh, and what, whatever was broken with it, I rem- we figured it out. It's like, we were talking about the, you know, the verses and whatever, I can't remember what, what it must've been something in the chorus that just wasn't landing. And one of us said it or, or, or we kind of both came to the conclusion. We both just sort of, we, we knew it when we had it. And we got back to his office and uh, and finished writing it, and that that was kind of the shape it stayed in. And um, we thought it was really good, and we thought it would be a great song for somebody. And we recorded it, did a demo of it that I sang, 
and I sent it to Alan and, um, he called me like, uh, seven o'clock the next morning and said, I want, I want that song. And I thought, boy, this must be better than I think it is. If, uh, <laughs> if, if he called me at seven o'clock in the morning, uh, saying that he wants to record it. And he was, he was on his way to the studio, uh, by the way. And, uh, and I said, great, it's yours. Um, and you know, a couple of weeks go by, they're kind of putting it into shape. And then he finally sends, sends me a, you know, a, a rough mix of it. And man, it just, I, you know, it, it made me cry. It, I was so, uh, I was so much a part of the construction of the song that it's easy to sort of put the emotional, you know, uh, impact of it, uh, you know, put that away and sort of get busy making sure it doesn't have any holes and stuff. And he's, he sang the song back to me in the way that made us feel it to want to write it in the first place. And, uh, it, 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 it made me cry. It was, he, um, uh, he just delivers a song like that so well, particularly that recording of it in Keith Stegall's production. And it was just a, I was very proud. I'm, I'm very proud of it. Um, and, and proud of Jay for sort of keeping us on track and making us finish it. It got, I mean, you know, it, it, that's the way it got us a Grammy nomination and it got us a lot of respect around town as, as, you know, pretty serious songwriters who could do some pretty grown up work. As, as you mentioned, I knew you when you were at Cook 20 odd years ago and a part-time yeah. musician. How in the world does that affecting Alan, affecting yourself, um, touching millions of people, getting a Grammy nomination, how does that validate you? Man, honestly, I don't think about it that much. Um, but if I, if it, when you, you know, you asked that question, it just, it, um, it's kind of like when I talked to my friend, she was like, look, you dummy, you made it, you know, you did it. Uh, cause it, I don't, I can't, you know, if you sit around thinking about how you did it and you made it, you probably don't ever do anything again. Um, you know, so I, I don't think about it much, but man, it, it, people still say things about that song. I mean, I, I still see people that are in the music business all the time. I see them around town all the time and they mention that song or new songwriters that I'm writing with for the first time. I mean, they say they heard that song or, or something of Leanne's and that's kind of why they wanted to be in the room. Um, it's because of those things. And man, we did make a little money off, off that song, but it's doing good work, especially today with the streaming. I mean, that song came a little before, you know, I mean, that, that was, that song was a while back, you know, uh, now I think the, the the money that you make off of a of a cut is is less than that but um but good work sort of gets you good work um i've found and i've never had any success looking for a paycheck i've just it's never i've tried you know i've got a wife and two kids man i mean i've tried to hit the lottery by writing songs that i didn't think were very good but that i thought had a chance of buying me a pool you know, I've, uh, I've tried, I'm not stupid, um, but it's never worked. Not once. I've never tried to write a song with the intention of making money that it worked. Not once, not even close. 
they get ignored. I mean, they just, it's like, it's like they never happen. And maybe thankfully for my, maybe my reputation, I don't know, but um, the only things that have ever worked for me were things that I felt that I was really inspired by that I was really excited to work on songs that I was really proud and excited to write. Those are the only things that have ever um, had any effect on me being able to make a living as a songwriter. And that's been a lesson to me. That's one of the things I've learned is to spend more time on things I'm truly excited about. I just, it's never steered me wrong. What what are, what is the toughest lesson would you say uh, that you've learned about, about chasing success? Um, um, don't compare yourself to other people. Um, you know, I think I've learned that late, lately, uh, um, because there are, a lot, you know, a lot of people, things happen for a lot of people. You know, there are people that I know, friends of mine who have gone on to be, you know, very successful and, you know, they might have this or that, and you can get caught up into thinking, I should have this. I should have that. Why don't I have this? They have that. I think I'm better than them. Why don't I? But that's their stuff. And they got it their way. You know, and they might be looking at me going, man, I wish I had this or I wish I had that. I may have things that they want and I just don't see it because we don't communicate those things with other people. Um, and realizing that those things are for them and my things are for me. And that's always changing. And if you're working hard, it's always in flux and you might, you know, stumble upon things might come to you that you didn't realize were going to be there. I mean, that's sort of always been the case with me anyway, but um, not comparing yourself to other people, the way they got there and where they got to um, it's different. It's going to be different for everybody. Um, and I'd say that's probably the big one. And personal finance is, is another thing they ought to tell. It, it's like when you walk into a pawn shop, when if you're 12 years old, 13 years old, you go into a pawn shop or a music store and you buy your first guitar for $200, it should come with a little pamphlet on personal finance. Like if you're going to go down this road, they should show you how to make a budget and, you know, stay out of debt. I mean, they that should come with... Um, that should come with a guitar. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. 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 Imagine you're that we're 40 or 50 years in the future, and there's some little kid in some small town in Georgia. Um, and whatever the, uh, the musical um, format is at that point, he fires up one of your songs. He hears it for the first time. How do you want to affect him? What do you want to make him feel? Mm. Like, like he or she wants to be a part of it. Like it's, it's exciting enough that they have to be involved. That's what I want them to feel and that they can do it. You know, that's how I want them to feel that they just, that, that that's what they're meant to do. That's the way I felt when I heard, you know, when I heard Chuck Berry, I was playing saxophone in the school band. And 
I heard Johnny be good. And I mean, I closed up that saxophone case and said, we got to go to Noonan Pawn Shop. I needed a guitar immediately. And my dad, and I can't believe he said no to everything. But for some reason, he took me to the pawn shop and we found uh, probably the cheapest, you know, Stratocaster copy they had and a little amp. I still got the amp. I wish I had the guitar, but I've still got the little amp. And I mean, that was it, man. I mean, I was off and running. But that, as soon as I heard it, I just I just knew. I was like, man, I got to do that. I got to. I got to, I got to take a swing at that and not, not be a star, but I just had to make those noises. I had to somehow be, uh, I had to figure this thing out. You know, it's like opening up a toolbox and you see a hammer and a socket wrench and you just got to go find something to turn and hit. That's kind of the way it was. And I hope I have that effect uh, on somebody at some point that they want to, they just want to do it. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.